0: This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Clulland. This week I will be speaking with Will Boucher, and... And I need to say something. This is one of the most powerful interviews I have ever done. Both of us went much deeper, much deeper into our experiences than I had expected. Uh, and, And I'll also add that both of us were a little nervous before this talk began. We talked about it just before we started recording the show. Will worked with the late Dr. John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist and author of the 1994 book Abduction, and the 1999 book, Passport to the Cosmos. Over the years, Will has been cataloging, digitizing, and transcribing the sessions and writings and spoken work of Dr. Mack. He's also been involved at both the John E. Mack Institute and as a consultant at the John Mack Archives. He's been providing the media and researchers with documentation to help keep the important work of Dr. Mack alive and available. I've known Will for about ten years, and I am continually amazed at his composure and sensitivity in the face of these challenging experiences. This audio conversation was recorded on Monday, July 15th, 2019. Please enjoy. Will, I want to thank you so much to saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. You worked with Dr. John Mack. I think he was the chair of the psychology department, or the psychiatry department, at Harvard University. Is that correct? Yeah, he founded the psychiatry
1: department at one of their teaching hospitals.
0: And you worked with him... Not at the beginning, but during the time that uh, he was doing research into what we would call UFO contact.
1: Yeah, towards the second part of his exploration of that. I wasn't there at the start. I was there when he was finishing up his second book, Passport to the Cosmos. And how did you end up meeting Dr. Mack? Well, it was about 1996 that I began to actually make a website about Whitley Strieber. And it was a fan site that I was putting together, um, which eventually became called Beyond Communion. And I was archiving all of his newspaper interviews and some transcribing some television interviews and essentially just trying to make a fan site to defend him from the attacks he was getting. Because in the press, Streeper was getting so many false accusations saying that he had uh, changed his story or that he denied uh, what he had written in Communion. And... I knew that wasn't true, and I really wanted to put up a site that would just defend him without him having to do anything. So I was uploading all these book covers, newspaper interviews, and such. And as I was transcribing Streber's interviews, I also had recorded an interview that John Mack had conducted on a Boston radio station. And I wasn't really familiar with John Mack at the time, but I was interested in Alien Encounters, and so I transcribed the recording with John Mack. And I need to check on the spelling and some of the names he mentioned, which led me to Mac's website. And their website at the time was really dull. So I sent them my transcript and suggested they post it. And they called me back, and they were so impressed by the accuracy of my transcript, and they needed transcribers to type up the interviews that Mac was having with experiencers. So they hired me as a transcriber and that's how I began working for John Mac receiving audio cassettes and typing them up and within a year I was invited to work at peer the peer office the program for extraordinary experience research um outside of Cambridge and that's how I met Mac I wasn't I hadn't even read his book at the time that I uh, that I met him
0: but, you know, I remember the, the Beyond Communion site, and I remember there was actually, you posted a very good interview with the, and I can't, I'm drawing a blank on the man's name, the fellow who did the the painting for the cover of Communion. Ted, Ted Seth Jacobs.
1: Yeah, I contacted him. He was living in France, and we had an email interview, a conversation about how he painted the cover of Communion. Oh, you did the interview? Yeah, I was.
0: I okay, was, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, that's right, because the site has been down for some time.
1: It has been down for a while. I left it up for about 10 years. I figured that was that was uh, as much thanks as I could afford. And at the time, the newspapers were starting to put their own archives online, and so it wasn't as necessary to have an archive of, of Streeper's interviews uh, there anymore. Plus, there was some copyright concerns of putting up other newspapers' um, articles on your own website, so I had to shut the site down, but I uh, – I did interview Jacobs, and it was fascinating hearing how he painted the cover of Communion based on, on Whitley's descriptions. And I asked him if the being was supposed to be male or female. And he said that it actually never came up, and that it kind of looks female to us, kind of looks like a Mona Lisa, just because it has those kind of delicate features and the sort of hypnotic gaze that we kind of associate with uh, femininity. But really, it was just a, an undefined alien being.
0: And and, and then it has become... Perhaps one of the most iconic images of the twentieth century. I mean, it's right up there with Ronald McDonald and Santa Claus as far as like absolutely identifiable. Absolutely iconic. Yeah. So you ended up working with Dr. Mack. Now you have had your own experiences with this with this strangeness. I
1: had. That's why I was um that's why I was so thankful for Willie Streber's books because he was I yeah. You know, it's a very difficult experiences to go through, and I saw that Willie was able to live through it and write about and articulate and explain the emotional truth of it so bravely. I was just so indebted to him. And when I started working for Dr. Mack, I was able to sort of come closer to accepting the the emotional reality of the experiences. You know, I'd already, you know, intellectually accepted that the experiences were happening, but I was I didn't really process them. I kept them distant. But the environment that uh, that John Mack provided, just having experiencers coming and going being interviewed there it it really let me breathe and and feel the experiences and come closer to them in a positive way.
0: well, that positive way is something that I guess defines the work of Dr. Mack in a way that's separate from let's say Bud Hopkins and david Jacobs. and I'm cautious to even use the word positive because I've talked to many of the folks, not, not that many, but a handful of the folks that have worked with Dr. Mack. And typical of there, they all have different conclusions of their own personal conclusions. And it's, you know, then a researcher was trying to sum up his conclusions. And I remember reading it somewhere. I have no idea where I read it. Uh, I guess it was almost used against him where they said, it was someone, uh, uh, one of his peers at Harvard, if I recall. He said, "Well, you know, Mac was like that. You know, he would just look at these things and try to find the spiritual message in these deeper things." I mean, he was friends with the Dalai Lama. He was familiar with transpersonal psychology, and so he was he was predisposed to find this spiritual side, which I guess is fair. But my sense is that, uh, having talked to the people who've worked with him, he went. One step deeper than perhaps just a surface level that other researchers may have stopped at.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fair um, comment that he did embrace uh, the spiritual possibilities of it. I mean, he was a transpersonal psychiatrist, which means a psychiatrist who influenced a little bit by Eastern philosophies and traditions. So when people would, uh, other people might write off things that might be fantasy or spiritual, John Mack was willing to listen. And he was following in the footsteps of Harvard's own William James, who attended Harvard Medical School in the late 19th century, and he also tried to bridge the worlds of psychiatry and spirituality. And, you know, John criticized how the field of psychology was really rigid in its definitions of outer and inner worlds and defining them as either real or fantasy. And in that context, the world of spirit was absolutely part of fantasy, or at best, uh, it was part of a purely inner experience that we invent for ourselves. But uh you know john was interested in the possibility that those definitions were just far too rigid so he did not censor himself when he asked people about their alien encounters and he listened to the high strangeness elements which maybe some of the other researchers weren't so much interested in because they felt that they just didn't seem like a realistic way that aliens would visit uh the planet
0: following up on i guess my own research which I I think that Dr. Mack was doing it at a different level than I am. I feel like I'm sort of a, I'm, I like, I am struggling with my own experiences and that is the reason I wrote the books that I've written just to try to my own therapy. Those, those books were my therapy. Now, one of the things that Dr. Mack wrote was, um, he used the term reified metaphor and I love that. And and I'm going to give the, um, kind of the off the cuff definition uh, that a metaphor made real. So people were having experiences that were metaphoric in their story structure that were metaphoric in their narrative, but they were playing out as real. And I've seen this over and over again. I, I'll just go to my own, like, like an owl is a totem animal and people are having experiences with owls. So people are having experiences with a mythic creature. And he recognized this pattern, and I was so grateful for that term, because that's what I was finding in my own direct experience.
1: Well, he was definitely holding out the possibility that the aliens simply seemed like aliens to us, and that maybe they were some sort of spiritual ambassador from some sort of world of spirit that envelops our own world, some sort of, you know, some sort of other reality. Uh, And he thought that aliens were giving us a kind of course correction, and that the sort of messages that he was bringing were in the tradition of spiritual messengers from the spiritual plane. But that said, I'm not actually sure that he was accurate in that possibility. That was what he hoped to find, and he certainly uh, held it out as a possibility. But I think that if you were to talk to the experiencers he interviewed, I think there are much more of the opinion that the alien beings... Are simply another species, which maybe has technology, which lets them travel through other dimensions, which seems very much like a spiritual world, but it's probably just another dimension or some other layer of reality that we have yet to define properly.
0: You and I are both experiences we're having this conversation. The last few minutes of just what you said that doesn't show up in in the pop culture. It shows up like you know people standing in the corner talking to each other at a UFO conference. We'll share this. And this is what I'm trying to get across in these interviews. There's a much more subtle, much more nuanced, I'll actually much more mysterious aspect to this than we would be led to believe if our only source was late night cable TV documentaries. Yeah, And so, yeah, thank you for that. Cause that's, that's my sense too. And I, I use the term alien all the time. And my defense for using the term alien is within the dictionary. There's a definition that says um, I'm paraphrasing from memory. One definition of alien was, would be to be so different as to be unknowable. That one resonates with me. That's my sense, because whatever I've been dealing with feels like it is outside the bounds or outside the boundaries of everything I've been told is true. It doesn't mean it's from another planet. It's just so different that it seems to me at times to be unknowable. Yeah, it's a
1: perfect adjective as well as a noun. It's it's the right word.
0: Yes, so as far as words, uh John Mack coined the term, I'm not sure if he coined the term experiencer. And if I'm not mistaken because abductee, you know, brings along the baggage of a victim.
1: Yeah, I mean, he didn't invent the term experiencer, but yeah, the the victim connotation of the word abductee is unfortunate and uh, you'll see that as far back as 91 and 92, before John had written his first book, he was using the term experiencers. Um, but other people were as well. Um, David Cherniak, a Canadian filmmaker who who actually helped arrange a meeting of UFO researchers uh, with the Dalai Lama, uh, brought them to Dharamsala back in, well, in 92, just a, a couple of months before the famous MIT Abduction Study Conference and triniac was using the term experiencer there repeatedly so we've got a lot of people to thank for the use of that term and it's so it's so much more neutral although it's kind of taken on a kind of positive tone to it. a lot of people who call themselves experiencers are people who believe they can learn something of value from their experience you know that it's uh maybe it's a positive experience i mean it's still terrifying it's still difficult but it's uh it seems like it's just a much more open-ended word and it's always thrilling when we're getting any of John Mack's books translated into other languages to have to explain to the translators that you're going to have to find a word that means someone who has experienced something but (laughs) sounds better.
0: Oh, I wouldn't even have crossed my mind. So here let me just what's your role let's what is your role right now involved in John Mack's material like we never stated that up front so let's- oh sure well
1: i'm still a consultant for the mac family um john max archives i've finally finished been uh, i finished archiving all the paper materials years ago but it was only as recently as last year that i was still digitizing a lot of the audio cassettes that he left behind uh with the intent just to preserve them um i'm i'm not aware of what the plans are um as far as you know, preserving these archives, but they are safe and sound. And, uh, yeah, his intellectual property concerns come up. There's, uh, you know, the hope to translate his books into other languages. There's, you know, film rights. There's even requests from the media still come around now and then. So I'm a a consultant for the Mac family, and I'm familiar with um, Mac's writings, both from when I was working there as a transcriber and from from the very start.
0: And there's a website connected to all this, and the title of that website is…
1: You can reach it a few ways. I think drjohnmack.com, um, johnemackinstitute.org, or just Google it. <laughs> You'll arrive at the right place.
0: And, and on there, there's a good list of audio interviews that I have found some real gems in there.
1: I tried to present the best materials. I mean, John Mack was of a generation from before the Internet, so he did tend to repeat himself a bit. So trying to find the best speeches where he hadn't already given them, and also just trying to find audio that was in good quality was a bit difficult. But we've got a good sampling there.
0: Good. And, and I um I go back to that site and reference that uh, because I thought some of those were really great. Even some of the simple ones, some of the stuff where that was just be a, you know, like a 15 minute kind of, uh, you know, John Mack on the morning drive time. Some of those were great. There's also a few articles by people besides John Mack. Some
1: of his friends and colleagues wrote uh, smaller pieces. And as much as John Mack is sort of the entryway into it. Of course, he's just distilling what he heard from experiencers. And I wish we could have more material from experiencers on there. But of course, there's tons of privacy concerns. And it's easier to have a person like John Mack quoting from experiencers than to present experiencers solo.
0: I understand that completely. Hey, we're at about the 15 minute mark, and we will need to take a short break. For non-members, there will be a few commercials. But for members, we will be right back. And we have returned. We are doing an audio interview with Will Boucher, who worked with John Mack. And, you know, one thing we did not touch on, and I don't really think it's that important to touch on, because anyone who's made it this far and who has come to this site is probably familiar with the Harvard Inquiry. And I think inquiry is almost too subtle a term. I think it was, it was pretty—they were playing hardball. And John Mack released the book Abduction— And in that book, he took the people who had these experiences seriously, and that caused quite a commotion. That he actually referred to as Kafkaesque, and we don't need to go into that. I think it would just it would take away from the time that John worked with these experiencers and John tried to make sense of this complicated issue. For me personally, I have a much deeper interest in the human story of his his work with the experiencers rather than the. Bureaucratic issues that that welled up with his employers.
1: Sure, and the important thing is that he kept researching the subject even after he had had that terrible experience with Harvard.
0: Yes, yes. As I said, he used the term Kafkaesque to describe it. And and um, here I'm Ralph Blumenthal, the fellow who is now at the forefront of the New York Times newspaper articles. There's been a handful of them that have discussed UFOs. It's my understanding well, – first of all, he wrote a wonderful article, I think back around 2012, in Vanity Fair, about John Mack. It was a very straight, clean, balanced article that anyone listening now should search that out. And then it's my understanding he's talking about turning that into a full book. Yeah, I've, I've actually been
1: familiar with his progress on writing that biography because as a custodian of the archives – I was digitizing John Mack's own therapy sessions, not sessions with experiencers, but his own therapy sessions. And whenever I would come across something where he was reflecting on why he was conducting this research, I'd I'd, uh, send it over to Ralph. And my impression is that he's in the final stages. As you say, he took some time off when in the end of 2017, he wrote that fantastic New York Times piece on the Pentagon's UFO program. And think he's now returned to the manuscript. And as far as I know, it's in the hands of the editors. So no publishing date yet, but I'm hopeful that we'll see it in the next couple of years.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And also, as Ralph Blumenthal also wrote an article in April of 2017, where he interviewed a woman named Cheryl Costa, and she wrote a book called UFO Sightings Desk Reference. And it's a pretty dry book in the sense that it is data, it is charts, it is a cross-section of all 50 states and I, I, I want to be careful, but a decades long study of the UFO sightings in each 50 state, each of our 50 states. It paints a pretty powerful picture that a lot of people are seeing a lot of UFOs. And he wrote an article about that in April of 2017. And and I was at some, I mean, at some point I just was shameless. If I wanted to get a hold of someone, I'd figure out a way to get a hold of him. So I sent him an email and he got right back to me, which was great. And I said, I got to ask, how did you get this article? through the gatekeepers at the New York times editorial department. And I, and I should, I'm doing this from memory, but he said something to the effect of, I was very familiar with the stance at the times. And I presented this article very carefully. And so it got through. And then, you know, some months later he had that second article with Leslie Keen and Helene Cooper. That was the one you just referred to. That was in a way, a lot of people in this, little field refer to that as as disclosure that's it that's disclosure that article maybe maybe not but that certainly was a remarkable article and the accompanying videos that
1: he was able to present on the new york times website itself
0: exactly yes correct yeah so yes i'm not saying i'm not downplaying its remarkable power but i'm i'm very cautious to say that that there has been full disclosure on the part of that, that people are craving in the ufo field i'm not craving it because i feel like i've Nobody has to prove anything to me. I've had my confirmation experience.
1: Exactly. But it's still a tremendous accomplishment on his part. And, and I should say that I, I don't know what to expect from his biography of John Mack. He's got a reporter's ethic, which means he doesn't let us see a single page. But I do know that the Mack family shared a great deal of Mack's archives with him. And so the opportunity is there for a really insightful look at John Mack's life and why he decided to research experiencers and you know what he got from the experience and how it changed him.
0: And, and then I'll just go back to that Vanity Fair article, which treated him extremely fairly. So I, I'm not worried, let me put it that way, that experiencers will be made fun of in that book. So. But
1: it's a difficult subject. Like we were talking about earlier, there's layers to this experience. And the difficulty always with a person who's coming to the experience new is they assume that it's about silver flying saucers landing on a person's yard. And you have to tell them it's actually much stranger than that. It's more David Lynch than Steven Spielberg. It's a, it's a meeting of worlds. It's a meeting of... Dimensions—it's a meeting of realities, not necessarily just a meeting between people from different planets.
0: Absolutely, yes. And and if he's as, as if if he's as prudent a writer as I hope he is, then I think he'll certainly touch on that if he doesn't bring it to the forefront.
1: He's taken years writing this to get it right, so I'm optimistic.
0: Good, good. There was also a film project in the works, and there's actually an audio interview on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, George Knapp hosted the show, and he talks to a uh, Hollywood insider who's, uh, I think she's a producer, her name is Denise David Williams, and she has been trying to get a feature film made about John Mack.
1: Yeah, that's true. I'm a consultant on that project, so I can't say too much about it, but it is still happening. And there's been interest, as you may have read a few years ago, uh, for a time Robert Redford's company was interested in it. We didn't quite see eye to eye on the storyline there, so it is now out to other people, other studios. But there's a real potential to tell the story that way as well. But it's also a difficult uh, decision to make between, do you want to tell the drama story of of uh, the sort of Kafkaesque trial or inquiry that John experienced at Harvard? Or can you tell the story of the aliens at the same time as you're telling that story? How much do you tell of each? Um, if you tell too much about the aliens, does the film start being perceived as science fiction? It's been a difficult process to find the right screenwriters to shape the story in a way that hopefully conveys the truth of what experience you shared with Mac. And um, the process is ongoing.
0: Yes, all those struggles I can imagine. And now there's also a film in the process. This is a documentary about the aerial school event. This happened in rural Zimbabwe on September 16th, 1994. I'm referring to my notes. There was an elementary school in Africa where over 60 people, many of them students, were witnessed to a remarkable sighting. And and there's some wonderful footage of John Mack arriving there shortly thereafter to interview the, the young students.
1: I think everybody's seen some of this footage because it's been bootlegged on YouTube for ages, because it is so compelling that even if even if only like two or three minutes of that footage had been released on programs like Sightings back in the day, uh, people recorded it and they shared it and they wanted to see more. And we had all the videotapes after John Mack passed away. We had these aging U-matic videocassettes that uh, we thought, well, we better digitize these and we could release them as some kind of like little half-hour documentary or something. And instead, we contacted a filmmaker named Randall Nickerson, who saw the footage, was as mesmerized by it as anyone else has been, and said, no, this has to be feature-length documentary. And he went to Africa. He spent a month there. He interviewed people who were still at the school. He tracked down the now-adult students who are now spread around the world. There's ones living in Canada, in England, and found out how they felt about the experiences today. And he just announced at the start of the year that they finished a rough cut and they're in post production now. And I've seen it and it is going to break your heart. It is the most moving, personal, heartfelt story. And it's not anything like any UFO documentary that you see routinely on television. This is a, a story that it's all about the feeling. It's, you can't see these, these children who are now adults or young adults. When they talk about this experience that happened to them as children, you can see how moved they were by the experiences. It affected their lives so deeply. You could just connect with these people immediately. It's, it's, it's a really heart moving story.
0: That is such a relief because I, I have been following this because there's been a few sort of teaser trailers online. I've been following the story and that is certainly how it has appeared. And so that's wonderful. And, and, I think that could be said of anyone who's had a close-up of a counter. Like, like, it would be very moving to 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 let anyone fully tell their story. And so that's great to hear for me.
1: It has to reach beyond the UFO niche. I mean, as as excellent as it is to have UFO books and UFO films uh, shared among people such as ourselves, it doesn't really affect the culture. It has to reach beyond the usual audiences and i think this documentary may do that
0: and there's been a handful of really powerful documentaries in the last few years that have i'll be just say it they've made money and have, are being shown on places like netflix and itunes absolutely mainstream and they they treat the subject very fairly yeah so this is i hope this trend continues that that filmmakers make thoughtful balanced uh, non-exploitative documentaries on this subject yeah so Dr. Mack was working. He did most of his um, sessions in his home. Is that correct when he was working? Now, here's a silly question. Did he call his, the people he was working with, did he call them patients?
1: That's been a really difficult <laughs> word to deal with as well. Um, I say that I call them people that he interviewed. We call them experiencers, but that's not always the right word because when you're interviewing a new person, you don't necessarily know if they are an experiencer. Um, they weren't patients. Uh, that said, we treat all the material as if it's private material between a, a a person and a therapist. So we're treating them as if they were patients, even if technically they were not.
0: Oh, I understand that. That's the, yes, and I can absolutely understand the, the need for confidentiality if people have had these experiences and are choosing not to share them and come forward. Um, and I know that there were some pseudonyms in the book, um, in both books, if I'm not mistaken, both uh, Abduction and Passport to the Cosmos.
1: Yeah, that's true. I should mention, I'm not the Will who is in Passport to the Cosmos. That is another gentleman named Will. And as you say, a lot of the names are not their real names anyway.
0: Yes. As someone who's looked into this and has talked to a lot of experiencers, and I've also talked to a lot of researchers, and oftentimes the people who have had, uh, who, like the the hypnotherapists or the researchers, will then go on to have their own, at the very least, they'll have synchronous experiences experiences it might stretch on to more paranormal experiences and it might even then continue on to actual sightings where would dr mack fall in this he longed to have that kind of experience maybe not
1: necessarily an alien encounter but he was absolutely into meditation or you know even trying some uh, Aboriginal uh, medications, shall we say, you know, efforts to see if there is some way to access other layers of the world, to see if there was some kind of spiritual world that you could connect with if you grew either through meditation or through, you know, controlled experimental drug use or things like that. Um, infrequently, I should say. <laughs> but no, he was a seeker in that way, but he did not have alien encounters. And I think at most there was maybe a couple of experiencers who said they saw him in the context of their own experiences, but he never had any recollection of that. And
0: oh, so let me just interrupt. So they would say they saw him on a craft.
1: That, that's my understanding. I, I never, I, I,
0: I wasn't part of those sessions
1: myself. Um, the aliens can appear in different ways to different people. You know, they're they're not always presenting an authentic. Um, visual appearance. So even if someone did say that they saw John Mack in the context of their experience, that may not have actually been John Mack.
0: Oh, I agree completely. Yes. Especially if you're dealing with hypnosis, which is a very slippery subject. And and we can talk about that more in the final half hour of the show. Did he recognize any synchronicities associated with his experiences or with it? Let's say with his research. In
1: his own life, not so much, but there were synchronicities of experiencers who had met each other on, let's call them the ships, who then ran into each other at John Mack's organization, recognized each other there. And that was perhaps because many of the experiencers came from the New England area, so I guess it may stand to reason that if if many people are being abducted one
0: night, they may indeed run into each other. (laughs) I... Oh, what you're saying is very common. I've heard many people say it. I know, I know I can count a lot of people who have said like, Oh, yes, we met aboard a craft. I know they'll just say it straight up. That I'm very cautious. I, I can vouch that they say it. I can't vouch that it's true, but you hear that thing enough. You got to at least consider the possibility. Yeah. Hey, we are at the end of the first half hour. At this point, we say goodbye to the free dreamlanders. The free interview portion of this talk has ended and for members, Stay tuned. We're only at the halfway mark. You'll hear more in just a moment. Thank you. We are in the final half hour of The Unseen. I am Mike Clell, and I am speaking with Will Boucher. We are talking about his time working with Dr. John Mack, and now his present time being the caretaker of the archives for Dr. Mack. Will, what was, what was Dr. Mack learning? What was he finding out from the people he was working with?
1: Well, experiencers were sharing with him these kind of apocalyptic visions that the aliens were kind of sending them telepathically. They were sharing these visions of of the environment just failing to support human life. And others were seeing forecasts of how this eventually leads to war. And others were seeing how the war then leads to the diminishing of the population of the human race. How eventually the human race goes extinct how eventually the Earth kind of replenishes itself, becomes a little more Eden-like. And then some were describing a world far in the future where the sort of hybrid beings that were part alien, part human, are sort of moved through time and end up on this new Earth to kind of continue both species. And what was fascinating was how these stories never contradicted each other they may fill in different eras different time periods but where they were the same they were complementary it was um you know it's it's quite frightening if you map this out which i had to do as a consultant for the for the feature film i had to distill what were the what were the basic stories that john was getting and he kind of soft pedaled it in his books. He warned that the aliens were giving us environmental warnings, but I think he was hoping that these aliens were simply giving us a kind of course correction, you know, kind of nudging us towards a way to uh, to not have our environment deteriorate. But if you take it not just as, as as a course correction, but just as a forecast, the aliens have a very dark view of what's going to happen to this
0: planet. You're, you're not saying anything I have not heard over and over and over, both in the literature and in talking with people directly. And I don't want that to be true. I would love to frame it as just a metaphoric parable, you know, a, a story that the grandfather would tell the grandchildren in order to, to help them on their way. But uh, yeah, so I that's
1: I, that's what I hoped as well. I, I, I always said, well look, in our Western culture our, our most famous narrative is saving things at the last moment. We'll fix things just when it seems it's too late. And for years that's what I believed and that's what I promoted and I said that, you know, we can do it if we just all drive Teslas that we have a chance, but it is so hard to believe that now because the, the environment is worse. The, the political structure to change the course is not present right now. And even around the world, even though other countries are far ahead of us in terms of leading the way and in terms of renewable energy and things, the population is too large. It's it's. I always thought it
0: was just a forecast that aliens were giving.
1: I never thought it was a sure thing, but it feels like their prediction is coming true.
0: And yes, it's very frightening. At the same time, human beings are remarkably creative and resilient. And I can certainly hope, you know, I had a dream one time, this is going back, I had these things called reassuring dreams and they were vivid and I I called them reassuring dreams. I'm not, I didn't know what else to call them. Many of them were quite reassuring. Like I would have interactions in a dream, like being on board a craft and meeting aliens. And I was the, the emotional content for me was like, this is it. I'm, why am I so afraid of these little things? You know? And I had one dream that fit the vibe or the feel of that where I was outside in a cityscape and military planes were racing above the city at night and then there were nuclear explosions off in the distance. And I ran into a theater, like a little movie theater. It was really tiny. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the little theater at Disneyland where Abraham Lincoln talks. And on the stage is like a jack-in-the-box. There's like a box and a puppet jumps out. And that's all I had. But this dream was so palpable and so vivid. So I was left with warnings of nuclear annihilation and then theatrical. I mean, that's, you just put those two together side by side like a puppet show. So I, I want to force that square peg into the round hole of other people's conclusions. Well, and the beings do communicate
1: theatrically because they don't speak English. I mean, they—they're telepathy; they're conveying thoughts and tones and feelings. But they do uh, stage events between experiencers, for example, when they have sexual relationships staged between people. They—they they seem to be relying on theater, so there is some. Um, there's the possibility that yeah maybe we are just simply supposed to see this as a just a possibility or as a warning but if this is true if that the human race is going to have an environmental catastrophe which is going to lead to war which is going to lead to eventual extinction you know the possibility is that both of our species will continue in some kind of form and i still feel that that's all right that you know if homo sapiens and this alien species have forms a new kind of life that has qualities of both of us. If you believe in incarnation, okay, so perhaps next time around we'll be living thousands of years in the future and we'll have four fingers instead of five and large eyes and communicate telepathically and (laughs) it won't be that you know it won't be that different. It's uh I think we'll miss some of the best things that we've created here, like our stories and our music, and uh I always wonder if there's some way to preserve or archive some of our best cultural contributions for that distant future time but then again would we even understand the language at that point so who knows
0: i agree i agree yes we're we're tapping into things that are unknowable here's a question did dr mack ever hypnotize you he offered to hypnotize me once to
1: help me with my panic attacks but i never actually uh, had a session with him um he knew i was an experiencer I, I spoke at a couple events so he was aware of my experiences and Certainly, you know, we just talked about them, but no, never hypnotized by them. So I've always had had my own experiences. Um, you know, like you, I journaled them. I, I recorded them. I tried to keep distinct what experiences were experiences that I just had that previous night versus experiences that I was thinking back on from many years before and so forth.
0: And and I have gone down the road of going through hypnosis, which, which I I had tried some years ago. Um, and once again, that's a very slippery slope. I'm very cautious. I'm very cautious how much to trust what emerges under hypnosis.
1: It's true, but there's there's there is truth to it, and, and there's other techniques too. I mean, there's people who who do um, Reiki therapy, you know, where they're processing emotions, and and as their emotions are processed, uh, memories associated with those feelings emerge, and. There's some credibility to them, in my opinion. I mean, definitely looking back on some of the childhood experiences that at the time only remembered brief, terrifying moments of, but then saw additional material around the edges, uh, it was was useful. So I think that –
0: Oh, have you gone through hypnosis yourself? No,
1: I haven't. Um, But I have had – you'd be surprised at the kind of psychological tricks you can use to elicit more information from yourself – for example, if you're with a therapist and you're you're taking a position, you're arguing a point, they might say, "Well, okay, that point is valid, but I'd like you to stand up and move and sit in this other chair to your left." and give me a different perspective and you'd say well what's the what's the point of of standing up and moving to a different chair i can continue speaking from where i am right now it won't make a difference but if you actually do it you'd be surprised <laughs> your mind is able to shift and you can you can present a different perspective more easily so there's
0: i have had therapy and there's many different
1: uh techniques one can use to uh explore one's own mind
0: yes and i have been through a great deal of therapy myself and um and I actually almost, I had to stop going to therapy because, I mean, it took so many weeks to bring the therapist up to speed with what my experiences might be that it was just like, I just felt like, like, and you could see that they were like enjoying and being entertained a little bit by my visiting to the office, but an hour would be up. And I was like, well, you got about like whatever, one tenth of the, the full story. So it'll take 10 weeks to tell this whole story. And, and so I found a little bit of help with therapists, but I, a lot of it, I just had to do on my own. Yeah, you have to do it on your own. And for myself, being in the environments of, of
1: John Max peer organization, like I said, I was able to uh, saddle up to my own experiences much more comfortably than I ever had been before, because they weren't taboo anymore.
0: Especially in those circles, yes, yes. In the book Abduction, there was a thread that emerged, which certainly may have been in the literature before that book. I think that book was... 2000, excuse me, 1996, is that right? 94, yeah. 94, oh, because a couple of years earlier. Okay, 94, 1994. And I remember I got that book right when it came out. And it was there on the stand at a little bookstore in Wyoming, like right when it came out, which was remarkable. And I just bought it right there and then. And um within that book, there was a story that reemerged several times where under hypnosis... Dr. Mack would take them back deeper, 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 and then there would be this sort of jump, and they would be in a previous incarnation, they would be in a previous life, and they would describe that they were no longer, they were not human in this other life, they were an alien entity, and that they had chosen to incarnate in this life. Yes, I always had that in the back of my mind when I was researching myself, let me say. And it's a wonderful metaphor. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful plot for a science fiction movie. But there might be something more to it than that.
1: He presented that very softly in his first book. But even presenting it softly, other researchers were furious at him for even suggesting that experiencers could recall past lives. They felt that introducing the subject of past lives would just invite ridicule and would write the entire experience off. But actually, if anything, I think that's probably one of the most important contributions to the field is the elements that experiencers are in touch with not just their present life, but with previous lives. And it begins with that sense of familiarity that you see reported by everybody, and not just John Max experiencers, but many of the experiencers that you've seen David Jacobs or Bud Hopkins write about, they say that the beings, yes, they're alien, they're terrifying, but they're somehow familiar. And the aliens claim they know the people. They sometimes say that they are family. And people are grasping, like, are you being metaphorical? What do you mean we're family? And the language barrier is such that it's very difficult to figure out. But you have people saying that they've been shown rooms and said, this was your room before when you were alive with us or there was one man written of in both the john max books who describes a female alien who he had met during his abductions and she was the same being who he was bonded with when he was alive before as an alien and that it does sound science fictiony but it's uh that's the deeper truth i think that's probably the most important thing and i think that when john mack wrote about that he undersold it in part because it seemed very tenuous but also because even the experiencers who told him that were hesitant to believe it themselves
0: yes and rightly so they should be hesitant to believe it because it's a remarkable outlandish thing to have but um, are you familiar with Joe Lewels? I know that he traveled with Dr. Mack when he was researching uh, Passport to the Cosmos. He speaks Spanish, and I know that they went to South America together. I've never met him, but I do recognize his name. Okay, so Joe Lewels, after working with Dr. Mack, um, he's retired from his, um, I think he was doing financial stuff, and he has since been doing hypnotherapy, working with experiencers, as well as doing past life regressions. So he's combined the past life regression and the hypnotherapy thing. And he, I'm going to be very cautious. I don't want to put words into his mouth. He doesn't say everyone he works with comes up with that conclusion, but he does say many enough that it's a very clear pattern that these people have lived a previous life and that they have incarnated here on purpose for a, for a reason.
1: Yeah, Without breaking any confidentiality of the people's uh, sessions that I transcribed, this was not simply one or two people in John Mack's books. This was many. I I would say at least a third of the people who John Mack interviewed talked about feeling that they had been an alien before and that they came to life here as human beings, fully human beings, just like anyone else. But they had lived before as the alien beings who are now returning to visit them.
0: I'm going to share something and I'm cautious to do this. This is your show, but we talked a little bit about this in email ahead of time. I, I I got hypnotized by Mary Rodwell in the autumn of 2017. A story emerged in it. Like, like I did not know how to fit it in to my waking life. It was the story just similar to what we're just talking about. And then I was in Los Angeles in a little less than a year later. So it would have been late summer of um, 2018. So less than a year later, I was in Los Angeles and I met with Yvonne Smith and she hypnotized me. Now, to be fair, when I did the session with, with Mary, we jumped all over the map. We were trying to look at many different experiences in my life. And some of them like were pretty, again, I'm very cautious to how much to believe about um, that emerges from, From hypnosis. But when I saw Yvonne, we just focused on one event, which revolves around what I'm calling my confirmation event. Now, this was an event where I was camping alone out in the desert, sleeping out under the stars. I was lying on my back in this beautiful, isolated place all alone. I was on a long drive in a very, very isolated road in a very isolated part of North America. And I was looking up on this hillside. I woke up and I looked on this hillside and I thought to myself, that looks just like a landed flying saucer. It's right there. And I even said to myself at the moment, I said, you know, I'm like, I go to UFO conferences. i like got this blog. I I, like, I feel like I'm really intuitive. And if that was a UFO, I wouldn't know it. So I kind of sat there and stared at this thing and meditated, like wondering if I'd feel some sort of like, UFO mojo or something (laughs) and I felt nothing at all and I rolled over and went to sleep. Now a bunch of other things happened that are connected with this. To tell that story correctly takes about a half hour and let me tell you there were so many synchronicities and so much weirdness connected to this event and more stuff happened that night. Basically there were coyotes howling right near my head that I couldn't see. There was a light behind a bush that I sat up and I kind of looked and "Well, that's a light behind a bush. I'll just go back to sleep. So I have since been back to that spot. I wrote it off as a big house on the top of a hill, like a big house. And, and I went back to that spot and there's no house there. Wow. And, but I have no fear associated with that night. None at all. It was like a fun night, you know, like coyotes howling. Yeah. This was a beautiful stars. I love sleeping on in the stars. So under hypnosis with both Mary and Yvonne, like I did not want to go down the same road. It was a rerun. I saw a rerun of my, hypnosis session with Mary. And it's a little, when you know, the transcription, what I said is a little more linear. It's a little more jumbled up with Mary. And that was just, it was, there was more going on in that session. So here I am. And I'm saying, I, you know, I'm lying outside. I'm under the stars. I'm in the sleeping bag. And, and, and now I, I'm looking down, I'm looking down at this big round thing and I'm not in the sleeping bag anymore. And then suddenly I'm in a hallway and I'm walking down this hallway and it's this curved hallway and it's all sort of uniformly lit. And it's kind of feels like sort of metallic-y, but sort of glowy, kind of hard surfaces. And I'm just walking down this rounded hallway. And the first thing I really recognized, and I said it aloud, I said, I'm not tall. Like I'm six foot tall and I'm not, I'm not, I recognized it right away. Like I'm short. I look to my left and there's a gray alien walking right alongside me. And I look to my right, there's this gray alien on the other side of me. And I look down at my hands and at these long fingers. I look down at my body and I had this skinny spacesuit on. I had this little skinny body with this tight fitting spacesuit on. I'm like, I'm, I'm a gray alien. And I, and I remember sort of going through this and you can hear it in my voice, like, (gasps) like I'm very composed and calm. I've told the story a handful of time and transcribed it and everything. So, so I'm calm retelling it right now, but let me tell you, it's, it's intolerable trying to listen to me. I am so severely emotional describing all this. So I, 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 to Yvonne, I said, take me deeper, take me, do anything, take me deeper. So she, like, does this little thing where she says, okay, you're going down a staircase, you're getting deeper, the hypnosis is getting deeper, you're in a deeper place, now what's happening? And I say, I'm in a conference room. And now here's where it gets metaphoric, like, this was not on board a flying saucer, right? So, I mean, I described a conference room, it looked like a tacky conference room you you would get at a crummy motel in Muncie, Indiana, right? It had ugly carpeting, it had fluorescent lights, there was nothing on the walls, there was these ugly table and I was standing on one side of the table and on the other side of the table, like nine or eight or 10 beings. It feels like their faces were sort of fuzzed out. And, and I, and I, and like, this was all coming in like flashes, like little micro flashes. I just get a little click, click, get an image. She's like, well, why, what are you doing there? And I'd ask the beings, I'm like, why am I here? What am I, why am I here? And they would say, now is the time. Like, what does that mean? Now is the time. What am I doing here? You volunteered for this. What I didn't volunteer for anything. What are you talking about? What volunteer for this? Like, now is the time. We got stuck in this little loop of like that. Just kept on going. And then all of a sudden, I was like, like, you never told me. You never told me. And I was freaking livid like i was sobbing i was like i was sobbing i was i was like so angry and i was like you never told me there would be sadness here yes you never told me there would be loneliness here you never told me it would be this hard being here and they would very calmly say you volunteered for this and I, and it's it is unlistenable the level of emotion that is that I'm going through in this point, so it just and I'm like you never told me, and I was swearing at him. I, I'm not going to swear here, but I was, I was, and it was like messed up. But that's not what I said, and 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 they said you volunteered for this, and now is the time, and it went on and on and built and built and built, and then it was like all of a sudden I was totally calm. Like all of that heightened emotion just like deflated. It felt like, like I was on Yvonne Smith's couch in her office in Los Angeles. It felt like I was a, like rigid with, with tension. It felt like someone def- put a pin in me and popped me, like, like deflated a pool toy and all of a sudden I just melted. And I said, I think I'm back in my sleeping bag now. And I was very composed at that point. And the picture that emerged was that I had been an alien, a gray, in a previous incarnation. I had come to Earth to perform some role. And Yvonne was like, "What's the role?" And I was like, "I don't know." And I said, "I said this under hypnosis. I said it feels like in a spy movie, when a spy is handed the envelope, they can they can hold on to that envelope, but they can't open it." Right. So, so it feels like I'm holding onto the envelope, but I can't open it yet. And that's my sense. Now, here's what I will say. You turn back the timeline. That event took place on March 10th, 2013. I am not exaggerating. I started the book. What I did is I started a, an online long format article that later became the book, The Messengers, the OWL book, the first book. And I was obsessed. I wrote this article. That article became a book. That book became two books. That book is now three books. That started absolutely days after after that event. And I will also say that within 48 hours of that event, like I had been denying my UFO experiences, within 48 hours of that event of waking up in the desert and driving home, my life had changed. I knew I had a direct UFO contact experience. And so I held the floor here for longer than I wanted to, but um, <clears throat> that is my direct experience and and that that was assisted by hypnosis for me, that doesn't make it true. The hypnosis the way I describe it is i said if you meet a if like you're walking down the path and you meet a wise man and a wise man tells you a story, like the story doesn't have to be true, but you can listen to the story and like and try to glean the lessons. I'm much more comfortable with looking at the story that way. If it's true, I'm overwhelmed. If I take a half step back and treat it as like a parable or a metaphor or a life lesson, then I'm I can I can I can drink in the lessons there. I'll, so if you want to say anything, go ahead. I feel like I'm a little jumpy right now. Having said all that,
1: well, I'm I'm so glad you spoke about uh, the experience being lonely. I mean, I the beings tried to explain it to me as well, and you know, like you, I was not in a realistic environment when they told me this. I I thought I was on an airplane. There was airline seats, but there was like 20 or 30 of these beings around me and they were asking me how I was doing. And I told them, and I was about age 30 at this point, and I, I told them I was lonely. And that answer was expected, as if as if they knew that could be something that would happen when I was born here. And, and it was sad. And I had to explain to them that I couldn't really remember them from before I was born. And, you know, I, that I sort of, sort of believed them and trusted them, but I wasn't wasn't really sure. And that was 20 years ago. And my sense of myself is a little bit different now in, the, in that I entertain possibilities. I think of things. I, I could say that I miss telepathy. I could say that it feels weird having so many fingers on my hands. Literally, it feels strange. There are things that being an alien... Is, are advantageous. I mean, stumbling over words here instead of using telepathy, I think we would be so much closer to each other if we did have some kind of telepathy where we could share our feelings more directly with, with other people. And as much as I embrace that part of myself, if it was a part of myself, I'm also hit with the reality that there's also no going back, that we're born here as human and Even if incarnation is a thing, my sense was always that the alien species was dying out. That this hybrid effort to make a new species would be how the species, both of our species, would continue. So if I were to die of old age, I won't necessarily incarnate back as an alien that I was. It's past. It's lost. It is lost to me. And the most I can hope for is... I suppose you could perhaps choose from any planet in the universe to incarnate his life, but I, I would assume, possibly, you know, becoming one of these hybrid beings. We should probably come up with a better name for those people uh, in in a distant future. But it, it's it's tragic not having a sense of your own past available to you anymore. Not only do we not have our memories of our experiences that we have right now in our ordinary human life, where we only remember a few minutes of an experience that might have taken several hours, we don't fully remember our previous life as an alien. But that sense that, that we were volunteers and that there was a mission and that it wasn't even a sure thing, that it might fail, but they were going to try. Um, it, it's, it's a history that should be detailed somehow. And, you know, I wish John Mack had written more about it. But uh, if I look back over all my oftentimes what I describe as dreams – I find years and years of these experiences where the beings are trying to share with me an explanation for what's going on and you just kind of store it away <laughs> until you warm up to it. And, and then it sort of becomes a part of yourself.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. I mean, there's so much you said there that was, I could say myself, I don't, I'm very comfortable with the five fingers in my hands. What I can say is that, <laughs> I have been, I like, I'm, I have been, so much of my old life has gone. It has fallen away. I am now in this new life where I'm writing these books. It is rewarding in every way except financially. Uh, so I'm, people send me these wonderful letters and it means so much to me. But I am on a new path where I have I am obsessively, that's the right word, obsessively digging into these mysteries and trying to articulate them in a way that is is real for me. I'm going to ask you something. You may not be able to answer it. If John Mack were here right now and you and I were in a room having this conversation and he was in the third chair, just listening carefully over the last half hour of what we've been talking about, what do you think he would say?
1: He would try to interpret it as a metaphor that could be applied to everyone, and would have to tell him no. We're talking specifically about people who were aliens before. I love him to death, but uh, yeah, he he tried to apply the lessons more universally, and really, it's it's not. It's a it's a deep, painful experience for the experiencers themselves.
0: And I would also say that it is a transformative experience. Like, I have changed. I, there has been a transformation. I am not the same person I was before camping out under the stars that desert night. It happened unconsciously in the sense that, oh, I know I'm going to, oh, this book this book sounds like a great idea. Let me throw myself into this book. Yeah, this book. Write on for this book. I look at the timeline, and I feel strongly, I can't prove it, I feel strongly saying, I was, good God, I don't want to use the word mind-controlled, I was fulfilling a mission. I was playing a role. I was, I mean, it's it's crappy to say, like, I'm doing the bidding of someone else, but that, I can interpret it that way.
1: Well, and it's not someone else if it was yourself.
0: Yes, but it's very difficult as a human to, like, you know, like, there's, there's this, like, jet pilots, right? They can hold, like, seven things in their mind at the same time, right? But- you know, normal everyday people can only hold about four things in their mind at the same time. Um and then I have to hold like a half dozen or a dozen remarkably bizarre, unbelievable experiences in my mind at the same time to to reach some balance point. And that is very difficult.
1: I feel a bit past it myself already. I've First, I agree entirely. The positives are fantastic. The person I am now, the view that I have of the world, of the sense of the continuation of life, uh, my sense that there's other dimensions, other realities, that there's life connected to other life and that we need to care and support for other species, not just aliens, but other species here on Earth. It's all been wonderful. But also, you know, I'm 50 years old. The alien encounters stopped in, in my early 30s that I feel that the part that I was born here as part of that mission has been accomplished already. And so the satisfaction in the sense of having offspring, I was i was introduced to a daughter on a ship once that I had, and it's wonderful t- for that to have taken place. But the fact is that now there's very little of that mission left in my life now. Every once in a while, I will still have like a dreamlike experience. I will sort of teleport myself into the alien environment i i found myself in the underside of a ship recently where i saw this kind of hydroponic garden of like these blue trees and this blue liquid that was producing air that was blowing around the ship and it was it was wonderful to visit that but these are all postscripts you know there's no particular mission occurring now i can continue to try to steer the environment in the right direction through whatever efforts I can make in that regard. But the the larger mission is over and you know, it's, it's a bit of a disappointment. It's, uh, you know, it,
0: I, I would, I, I would argue that, that the, I would say you're still working with John Max material. You're consulting with authors. You're consulting with filmmakers. You're consulting with me. I mean this talk just now, just with me. Publicly, you you are still offering a lot, and it may not play out like direct UFO contact. Well thank you. The role you have played in my life just now, this is this was very helpful for me to hear all this, because I am not at a place of peace with this. I'm I'm much more at peace than I was, but I'm still wrestling with these. These are this is challenging stuff.
1: Thanks. I, I... I I haven't had an interview in many years. Uh, I had a really great interview uh, like a decade ago, and I said, "Okay, now that I've had a perfect interview, there's no need to say anymore." But I I do feel that sharing this is meaningful, and and that it does have a purpose, and and hopefully, it will help people. But um, yeah, (laughs) it's
0: it's yeah. Sorry. No, oh, no, no apologies yet. Yeah, we've gone way over the time. I'm going to, no, it's yeah. not an issue at all. No, no, I don't care. We're it's, it's all fine. Yeah, this, is in, to- this is important stuff. I ain't going to edit much out. But at a deeper level, the listeners to this site are uniquely open to exactly what you and I have shared on this talk. So I just, I feel like we have done a service. You have done a service to me personally by saying what you have and also to the listeners of this, of this show.
1: Well, I'm so thankful that this grassroots community exists. It's, uh, you know, the truth is uh, being held by people and hopefully shared among them and hopefully passed down to one's own family. Because uh, even if there is no confirmation, as you say, even if there is no, no disclosure, finding the truth of it in ourselves is ultimately how we find meaning and purpose in our lives. And hopefully we're close to accurate on this one.
0: And there's nothing more I can say that you, you haven't summed up in those last few sentences. Will, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a remarkable discussion.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Wow. Okay, let me just look at the clock here. We went about 15 minutes over. That's going to be fine. Uh, this is as powerful a talk as I've ever had on this show. So Really? That's good. I I, I hope. It is good, Yeah. Wow, indeed. I left that little bit of dialogue at the end. I felt like it needed to be there. I could have snipped it out, but it sort of wanted to be there. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. And I need to say that this conversation felt so powerful. Even as it was happening, it felt powerful. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you, Will. Thank you. I need to add a few things. I had my own podcast for a few years, and during that time I had spoken with Will on the phone, and I had asked him if he would do an audio interview with me. This would have been around 2010, and he very politely said no, and I did not press him on it. He told me he had done one very good interview, and that seemed like enough. He mentions this interview near the end of our talk and he said at the time he didn't need to do one again. When I contacted him recently, and this is about nine years later, my request was simply that we talk about his work at the John Mack Institute. During our emails, I cautiously asked if I could bring up the fact that he was an experiencer, and I expected him to say no, but he replied, no problem. He was very aware that that his experiences were intertwined with meeting Dr. Mack and the work he would eventually do. Uh, Will and I worked together to come up with a tidy outline for the show, and it was Will who wanted to talk about some of the things he had learned during his time digitizing and transcribing the work of Dr. Mack, including the counseling and hypnosis sessions. He wanted to discuss the messages about future events, as well as the strange issues surrounding the clear pattern of experiencers telling of having lived previous lives as alien beings. And this is something that we share. This subject, these strange difficult experiences, these issues can be so easily exploited. The ideas and events are terribly challenging to try to convey, and we need a calm, thoughtful discussion to try to understand what is unfolding in the lives of real people. For me, Will Boucher seems to personify exactly that calm, thoughtful stance. He has spent years looking into what might be the most bizarre aspect of the human experience And he can talk about what he's found with such grace. We need more voices like his. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Special thanks to Lauren Cutts for the spooky intro and outro music. And one more special thank you to Andrea Lisette Villiere on the gong.